Welcome to Extension Out Loud, a podcast from Cornell Cooperative Extension. I'm Paul Treadwell. And I'm Katie Bailden. Who are we talking to this time, Katie? So we are talking to Katie Graziano, who's the Coastal Resilience Specialist in Jamaica Bay for New York Sea Grant. And Paul Focasio, who is the Communications Manager for New York Sea Grant. And it's a nice conversation about some of the work that's happening in New York City. Uh, with Sea Grant and some of the interesting things people are doing to adapt to some of the changes that we're experiencing in our climate. Particularly flooding and sunny day flooding, which I didn't know about before this conversation. So it's pretty educational and interesting. My name is Katie Graziano. I am the Coastal Resilience Specialist based at Jamaica Bay, and I work for New York Sea Grant. But my position is a partnership with the Science and Resilience Institute at Jamaica Bay. Before Sea Grant, I actually, well, so I grew up in New Jersey, so very local to New York City. I went to college at Cornell University, did my undergrad in natural resources. And so in a way, it's kind of full circle. For master's, I went to University of Washington, became more interested in kind of the human dimensions of resilience. I did some research in the Philippines about gender dimensions of climate change adaptation in fishing communities. And after that, I ended up working for three years in the Northern Mariana Islands, where I was the watershed coordinator for their local government. So really focused on community-based watershed management to improve water quality and the health of coral reefs. And then after that, I thought it was time to not be a 45-hour plane ride away from my friends and family in New Jersey, and I missed New York, and I missed everything about being here, and so came back and was very lucky to get a job working in Jamaica Bay. And I am Paul Focasio from New York Sea Grant Communications Manager. Hey, well, it's nice to have you both here with us today. So just to start out for folks that don't know, can you tell us in a couple sentences, what is Sea Grant? So Sea Grant is a coastal science research and education program. Federally, we're funded by NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. In each of the coastal states of the 34 uh, Sea Grant programs, we are supported by uh, local institutions in New York. That is Cornell University, uh, and that is the SUNY system. We have a variety of specialists that are supported through Cornell Cooperative Extension, so that's where they sit. And then a lot of our administration is in the SUNY system through Stony Brook University. Interestingly enough, we have a number of our CCE staffers who are on uh, SUNY campuses, though, so it really is a symbiotic relationship. Before we narrow in and focus on Katie's uh, ongoing project right now. What are some of the other things that Sea Grant does? Uh, what is the range of activities that Sea Grant is involved in in New York State? There certainly is a, a wide variety. For example, October is National uh, Seafood Month. So we do a lot of seafood safety, education, and extension work. There are other things like in terms of research, there has been lobster research, hard clam research. Um, we have uh, specialists who deal, of course, then with fisheries, but also water quality, a variety of coastal issues that are impacting our local communities. Excellent. Thanks for setting the stage for us, Paul. So, Katie, tell us about Flood Watch. The Community Flood Watch Project 
which I just recently started coordinating, but it's been ongoing for quite some time now. It's essentially a citizen or community science um, program where we are partnering with residents in low-lying neighborhoods of New York City to help us to report when they're seeing flooding, like sunny day, high tide flooding in their um, neighborhood. The residents are really important partners and that they're offering their local knowledge of what they're actually seeing on the ground. And then our role is to help connect that data and that community knowledge to resources that the city can offer and also connecting it to the latest academic research. And so we take those flood reports and with our academic and government partners can help to improve forecasting so that we have a better sense of what to expect in the near future and also in the longer term. Katie, can you tell us a little bit about Jamaica Bay? Jamaica Bay is an estuary located in New York City. The watershed of Jamaica Bay, meaning the area that drains into it, is composed of three counties, Brooklyn, Queens, and parts of Long Island. It's actually a huge and beautiful and very natural space that people can access by the subway. There's opportunities to go fishing and kayaking, and it's also kind of a refuge for really unique ecosystems that you don't find elsewhere in New York City. Bird watching is very popular. There's a lot of different jurisdictions. There's actually National Park Service land. There's city parks, and then there's extremely diverse neighborhoods, all within a pretty small and densely populated area. So why was the program started? What was the need for it? It really came about quite organically. My predecessor was starting to hold workshops that she was calling climate forums to talk about what are you experiencing in your neighborhood related to climate change and the coast. And so something that came out of it was that a lot of these neighborhoods were experiencing flooding on perfectly sunny days when it was high tide. They didn't necessarily even expect there to be flooding that day. It wasn't even necessarily forecasted, but it was disrupting their lives and there was no connection really between what they were seeing and what they were posting on Facebook and to like a broader network of knowledge and communication about that. And so Floodwatch was an opportunity to start taking all of this disparate information and putting it into a collective place where people could communicate their stories and also like raise those stories up to a higher level where there could be some action. It started off as informal conversations and sending emails about like, oh, I saw a flood here or uh, checking on Facebook and seeing where people were seeing floods. And it's turned into a more formal mechanism where there's an online survey form. It geolocates exactly where people can take photos of floods. And there's a bit more data control in the sense that it's, you have to put in how deep the flood is, exact time of day, and other information that helps provide researchers and the city with critical information about the floods that are happening. When you talk about a flood in Jamaica Bay, what is an average flood like? An average flood, or I guess I should say, it's not your storm surge floods. Minor flooding would be like up to a foot, maybe two feet of floods in certain neighborhoods. And that's happening without the additional like storm surge where you would see those more severe floods. And these are things that people are just experiencing on a regular basis. It's exacerbated by things like wind direction and like offshore storms. It's not like a Hurricane Sandy event. This is just a very regular, even a monthly or bi-monthly event. 
So it's part of normal life now in Jamaica Bay. Exactly. People have learned how to live with the high tide flooding. And the folks who have been there for generations or even just like they've been there for, say, 30 years, they're definitely noticing that what used to happen pretty infrequently is happening more and more frequently. Can you tell us a little bit about how the community is adapting to these changes that they're seeing? Right now, a lot of the adaptation that people are doing at a personal level are things like just daily changes in their behavior or their habits. For example, if they know it's going to flood, either parking your car somewhere more uphill or parking your car on cinder blocks to keep it out of the floodwaters. Some residents have taken advantage of the opportunity to raise their houses, especially after Hurricane Sandy. There were some programs that helped with that. The city has been raising some streets that helps in certain ways with things like street parking, but also comes with other consequences of where does the water go? Once the street is higher up, the water has to go somewhere else. What types of people are participating in the program? I think anyone can fill out the forum with data, but are you seeing a lot of people taking advantage of that and sharing their data and information? It is expanding, so we're hoping to basically open it up to anyone who's interested in participating. We would love to have them participate. We do get a lot of interest from student groups or from teachers who want to potentially incorporate it into their curriculum. I often present to NGOs, community groups, civic associations, just people who are really invested in their community and are seeing issues and want to raise those issues and make a difference. When you get this sunny day flooding and it starts impacting roadways and things like that impact emergency services, what do citizens who are living in Jamaica Bay really, what is the experience of that? There's definitely impacts. We've done a pilot study of social impacts around Jamaica Bay of sunny day flooding, and that will be out pretty soon in the next couple of months. And we're continuing to get funding for more social impacts data. We don't want to make assumptions about how people are experiencing flooding because this is something we can really learn from by doing this research. But I will say somewhat preliminary or anecdotally, there are impacts just to like mental health and stress. There's impacts to daily routines, to services like bus routes, or being able to get kids to school on time, to being able to make doctor's appointments. Because if the streets are flooded, they're literally trapped. You can't go about your normal routine. And there's so many ways that affects your life in ways that you might not even think of. I'll add that when you think about the fact that this flood watch program is supported by the governor, it's supported by the mayor, that's all well and, and good. But it would be nothing if not for the communities themselves. And when you think about how flooding is impacting people in their daily lives and the stress that it can put on you. And it is comforting to know that with the data that the actual community members are providing through this online tool, it's making a difference and it will continue to make a difference and hopefully grow this program. So this is a perfect example of how Grant comes into communities and tries to not necessarily solve a problem because some of these problems are quite complicated, but at least try to find ways that the community can grapple with these issues and create a discussion and hopefully seriously rise above them in some way. When you think about people putting their cars on cinder blocks and doing all of these other kind of mitigation factors, it's a lot for these communities to be doing, but 
they're probably, unfortunately, so used to doing it that it's just second nature. So other communities beyond these may have to deal with these kinds of issues in the future. So in a way, these communities are almost like a test study for what we might have to deal with as time goes on and as we deal with more of these flooding issues. But it is good to know that the communities are providing buy-in. Thank you for adding that. And it, it is twofold because we are learning from the communities about what are the adaptation measures that people are turning to. And by involving the New York City Mayor's Office or New York City Office of Emergency Management, they're learning a lot by the conversations that we have with communities. And they're thinking more about what they can do at the city level to support people in doing whatever they need to do to deal with what they're experiencing. Is there a lack of awareness about some of the flooding issues among government officials? I think so, yeah. My understanding is that when Flood Watch started, we were getting more and more photos. There were agencies that were shocked to see how bad it was and how frequently it was happening. And there wasn't really data being collected on that by any other organizations? No, and, and that's the thing. When people hear the word flooding, they usually think there's this storm that comes in, there's all this water that gets pushed on to these communities, and then it kind of dries up and goes away. These are not necessarily puddles that we're dealing with. And when you talk about sunny day flooding, this is kind of flooding that comes from out of nowhere in terms of it's unexpected. So it's a surprise. So kind of being aware of where these situations can pop up it's really important for a community and for the leaders of that community. To follow up on what Paul said, being able to collect data and measure instances of sunny day flooding, does that mean that they can become more predictable? Can that help with forecasting? That's exactly right. We actually partner with the Stevens Institute of Technology in New Jersey, and we use their model for predicting flooding and it's quite accurate but there's definitely plenty of room for improvement and so that's where the flood reports come in because there are definitely days where they predict that there will be flooding and there's actually no flooding at all or vice versa and helping to close the gap between the expected and the observed flooding is really important and that's exactly what the flood reports do. So I'm just curious New York City it has a lot of if my geography is working correctly in memory, it has a lot of coastal areas. Is there an effort to expand Flood Watch to include some of those coastal areas? Absolutely. We started off focusing around Jamaica Bay, and we recently got funding to expand to Coney Island and the Bronx. And so we are, as much as possible, expanding throughout New York City. There is also an effort to expand it throughout New York State. So even in the Hudson Valley, they experience flooding. Great Lakes experiences flooding from different sources. And so we're expanding it throughout the state. We're collaborating with other states. We're trying to scale it up as much as it makes sense for us to do, which right now, the more we can learn from other partners, the better. You've mentioned a couple times the idea of community science. And I just wonder if you could talk about this the concept of community science sort of as an expansion perhaps of citizen science or what it means to call it community science versus citizen science? That's a really good question. The reason we don't use citizen science is because it has implications for people's citizenship. 
We're not trying to restrict this in any way. We want to make sure everyone in the community is included in, in our work. There's something to say about that because projects like this, the science is only as strong and accurate as the folks and help to make it that way. So it's really important to realize that by communities playing a part in programs like this, they're saying that they have faith in science and what it can provide them. So there's that kind of back and forth relationship. When we think of science, we think of, you know, lab instruments and precise measurements and things like that. So how does the technologies of science, how does that interface with the, what do we want to say, the technologies of community to ensure that you have both human reports and technological reports that reinforce and work together? Did that question make any sense? <laughs> yeah, I think, I think what you're kind of touching on is the importance of, it, it, it is science, social science, um, the importance of community networks and communication and ex knowledge exchange and storytelling and all of these things that we know contribute to resilience, but are maybe a little bit less tangible than the hard data physical science side. And that's definitely something that I've always pushed for is the importance of understanding the human elements of resilience and incorporating that into your management approach. Because I mean, you could easily imagine a system that was just a bunch of automated sensors that was reporting data, but that doesn't, there's an element missing there. And I think, Katie, you, you identified it correctly as communities. And having ownership over the data is so important. It's not... Well, it's funny that you, that you mentioned that because we are piloting a sensor program, but the critical part is that we have included the community every step of the way in, are you interested in this idea of sensors? Would this be useful for you? Where should we put them? Who should we include when we present about them or when we get feedback? Because of the way the program was born, we've consulted with the community all along the way and so we're able to introduce sensors in a way that might be more supported than, like you said, if we just came in and said, oh, we're going to just put this sensor in your neighborhood and it's all opaque and you don't really know what, what's going to happen with the data. The data are still in the ownership of communities. And the hope is that it empowers them to advocate for what they want for their own community with the data that they've collected themselves. A lot of times with data, we just we think of you know zeros and ones we think of you know and that can be the case with with sensors and such but a lot of data in this project also with folks uh submitting through the tool you know they're showing actual pictures and a picture is worth a thousand words so a lot of times while it might not be so tangible to some folks what's going on in these communities you look at some of these photos and you can really see what's happening and then you can kind of say, okay, well, this is what's happening. How can the science better help this community? And so what kind of support or resources do community members have for collecting data? The way it works is that I'll usually reach out to a leader of a community group, like a civic association, or someone will reach out to me, or I'll find someone on Facebook who seems very active in posting photos. And once I can connect with a community leader, then that's the way that I can 
get on the agenda for the next community board meeting or something like that. And then that's where I'll present about the project, explain why we're doing it, and then give a really brief training about how to use the survey form. Local decision makers and lawmakers, are they interested in the more qualitative information like the storytelling and the particular resiliency measures and things like that? Are they also interested in that data for decision making? Absolutely. Our partners in the social impacts research are the mayor's office and the U.S. Forest Service has a lab in New York City as well. And so they're definitely interested in the results and in how they can translate that information into positive adaptation. You know, the one thing that I will, I will say just about kind of flooding in communities in general is if someone comes from a community and they don't experience flooding at all, if they were to look at a case study like this and say, well, why do people in that community stay if like the flooding gets so bad? Why are they putting their cars up on cinder blocks? Why are they dealing with this? You know, we have to understand that humans are creatures of habit and we have pride in the places that we live. It's very difficult to tell someone to just get up and move. Now, at some point in some communities, and I'm certainly not saying it for these communities, you know, decades down the road, maybe that happens in certain communities. But uh, in communities that can do their best to deal with these situations and still live in them somewhat comfortably, I mean, more times than not, you're going to find people who will opt to do that. So if a community knows that they can benefit from a program like this and it can help them to improve their quality of life, it's invaluable for people to be connected to a resource like this. It's funny. You mentioned I was one of my notes earlier on was New Orleans and what can you learn from New Orleans? Uh, I mean, there's a community where, you know, it's below sea level, but people stay there they go back they deal with the issues that have to and it's hard to imagine a world without new orleans without that unique community there so i would imagine i've never been to jamaica bay i don't think but i would imagine it has its own vibrancy its own identities that it would be a loss to our cultural fabric if jamaica bay suddenly was subsumed by water yeah so thank god they're out there putting their houses on stilts and, and the thing that I'll say about um, New Orleans and, you know, after Katrina, I, I went there with some sea granters, actually, and we did some kind of habitat restoration, and we toured the communities, and, and we saw kind of where the water came to and how everything was wiped out, and that's when I started to get it, and I just like, okay, well, these people are rebuilding, knowing that this may and will likely happen again, but it's community pride and there's nothing wrong in that it's just that we need science to help us drive the decisions that we make and it all comes down to access to resources and access to decision making i think what's important about flood watch is that it gives people the tools to make the decisions that are important to them and so it's not like the city comes in and says you know you have to move People have to have ownership over their own choices and their own future and having the data and having a better understanding of what to expect in the next 30 to 50 years that helps them make decisions about what is best for them and for their neighborhood. There's a lot in this whole conversation about this blending of science and community that I think is is vitally important because when you look at 
crisis situations, communities are incredibly resilient and incredibly innovative Mm -hmm. in crafting solutions to challenges. So if you can marry that innovation, that spirit with scientific data that can inform some of those choices, then there may be hope for the world. Exactly. I can't stress enough the importance of community knowledge and listening and learning from what people are already doing because, and not, and like you said, it's not just New York City, it's New Orleans, it's internationally. People have been having to deal with this and not just with climate change. Like since forever, people figure out ways to adapt to things innovatively and it's really important to learn from that. I think that's the beauty of resiliency is that the folks in these communities, they're not waiting for someone to come into their community and tell them, okay, this is what we're going to do, or this is what you have to do. These people are taking action and saying, I want to be a part of this process. Yeah, I want to help make those decisions. We've talked a lot about sunny day flooding, but I wonder if the data in the community that's kind of mobilizing to, to report would also be useful in cases of more extreme disasters or, or storms. Yeah, that would be the hope. I think one of the benefits of building this like social network from the ground up is that it creates avenues of communication that didn't exist before. Hopefully it could help give people access to resources like city emergency services that they didn't know existed. And so, yeah, absolutely. Even though our focus is on sunny day, high tide flooding, we hope that it will help people be more resilient and more connected in the time of extreme disaster. Thanks for listening to this episode. Extension Out Loud was produced and edited by Paul Treadwell with help from Katie Belden and RJ Anderson. For more about this episode, including show notes, a listener survey, uh, sign up for our mailing list and more, visit extensionoutloud.com and be sure to subscribe to Extension Out Loud on your favorite podcast directory.